As many of you know, we're just a few weeks out from Easter Sunday. And every year this time of year, you will see articles in secular magazines and specials on the History Channel and A&E about Jesus. And with many of these specials and in many of these articles, you will hear from so-called scholars about who Jesus really was historically and the events surrounding his death and what led to his death and what his followers believe about his resurrection. A few years ago, at this time of year, I was watching one of these specials and listening to one of these so-called scholars. It's a man by the name of Stephen Patterson. Dr. Patterson is a professor at Willamette University where he teaches a course on religion and the history of religion. He is a member of a liberal group known as the Jesus Seminar. They're often some of the ones questioned in these specials. And when, when, when asked about Jesus and his death, he said this. He taught that though Jesus was a towering historical figure, though he was a remarkably skillful and extremely moral teacher, though he was a solid religious leader with great intentions who stood for and set his mind to accomplish great things, though that's the case, his life ended in a tragic way. He was tragically killed for his cause. And this is consistent with what other members of the Jesus Seminar teach and consistent with what they believe. They, they view Jesus in this way. As this great revolutionary leader who opposed the established, cold, heartless, unloving, and bigoted system of the day, and as a result of his beliefs and his teachings, as a result of his cause, he was martyred. They, they say, though his impact that he has made is undeniable, no questioning that, because of what he stood for and who he stood against, Christ was tragically killed. They, they say that his death was not necessarily in his plans, though he knew it could be a possibility, kind of like a, a Diedrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King Jr. knew it could be a possibility for them to die for what they believed in. They, they view Jesus in this way. They say he knew it could happen, but it was not in his plans, but was what happened as a result of his teaching and what he stood for. A lot of people believe in this way as well. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear those teachings and when I hear from people who, who view Jesus in this way, I'm reminded of the fact that though people in our world today, for the most part, are familiar with the story of Jesus' life and death and even what his followers believe about his resurrection, I'm reminded when I hear these people teach and people share these kind of opinions, I'm reminded that most people are unaware of what scripture teaches when it comes to the reason Jesus died and the work that he accomplished at Calvary and the significance of his resurrection. And because that's the case, because that is one of the major 
focuses of each of the gospel writers, especially Matthew in his gospel, which is where we're going to be for the next few weeks. That's where we're going to be placing our focus as well for the month of April, most of the month of April. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. We're taking a break from our series in Hebrews, and for the next four weeks, we're going to be studying Matthew's account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection taken from Matthew 27 and 28 in a series I'm calling Matthew's Easter Story. Today we're going to begin our series with the end of Christ's earthly life. And for the sake of time, we're not going to camp out in the details leading to the crucifixion. Lord willing, I'll have an opportunity one day in the future to preach through the whole book of Matthew. But I've only allowed four weeks for this study, so we're going to have to jump right in. We're going to jump in midway through Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew 27. We're going to begin by looking at verse 45. This is after the betrayal of Judas, after both the Jewish and Roman trials of Jesus, after him being humiliated before large crowds of people in Jerusalem, after him being beaten and led through the streets out of the city, carrying his instrument of death to his place of death. This passage records what takes place three hours in to Jesus' crucifixion at the sixth Hour. This is where Matthew places his focus in verses 45 through 56. And in this passage of Scripture, Matthew makes mention of several miracles that occurred that God uses to explain the meaning of the crucifixion, to show the work that Christ is accomplishing at Calvary. I have heard some scholars explain that the miracles surrounding the cross serve as God's commentary on the work that Christ is accomplishing at Calvary. I like that. That's right. It's God's commentary. These miracles are significant. They are telling us something. So we're going to focus in on this passage of Scripture, this event, these miracles this morning. As we do that, there are three things I want you to see. I want you to see the gloom at the cross, the joy from the cross, and the response to the cross. The gloom at the cross, the joy from the cross, and the response to the cross. The cross. First, let's look at the gloom at the cross. Look at verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Let's stop there for just a minute. Though we often sing wonderful, beautiful songs of praise about what took place at Calvary, which we should. We've been doing that this morning. We wear crosses around our necks. We, we decorate our homes and our church with this instrument of death. And though this event is one of the most glorious and wonderful events in human history, it was also an extremely dark and gloomy event. As well, and I think it's fitting that it's raining this morning like it is, right? As we focus on the gloom of the cross. We, we, we know that the cross was gloomy simply by looking at the details. 
from the story. But we also see it by studying the miraculous events that surrounded this event. Matthew tells us here that at the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land for three hours until the ninth hour. Now, the reason we know this took place three hours in to the crucifixion, like I said earlier, is because in Mark's account, in Mark 15, 25, we're told that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, okay? So follow the timeline. That was about nine in the morning. So the events taking place here in this passage, we're looking at today, three hours in. It's noon, okay? This is the time when the sun would be at its peak. At that time, when the sun should be shining its brightest, we're told there was darkness over all the land, and this continued on for three hours. Now, it is debated whether or not this is a localized darkness or a darkness over all the lit part of the world. At this time, the word land used in the Greek is the Greek word gi, which refers to the surface of the earth, the dwelling place of man, contrasted with the heavens above, we have the earth below. There are some extra biblical historical sources as well, very interesting, that seem to indicate that this might have been a universal darkness. Origen, who was around during the third century, made mention of a statement by a certain Roman historian who mentioned an unusual darkness at this time. Another early church father, Tertullian, around in the second century, wrote to some pagans, and in his writing he also mentioned an unusual darkness. There is a writing from Pilate, to Tiberius that we have today. And in the writing, it is assumed that the emperor is well aware that in all the world where the sun was to be shining at noon, at this time, during this event, it was dark. How about that? So it may be the case that the whole lighted part of the world from noon to three was covered in darkness while Christ is being crucified. God supernaturally turned out the sun, believers. That right there is a miracle, right? Now, why did God do this? What's the meaning for the darkness? What is God trying to tell us by turning out the sun? Well, we are not told, no Bible writer, no New Testament writer comments on this darkness at all, but I don't believe they need to. I believe it's obvious. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever there is darkness, get this, it is always a symbol of divine judgment. Remember the Jews in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, remember the last plague in Egypt before the death of the firstborn? Who remembers what that is? It's darkness, right? Thanks, Jimmy. It's darkness, right? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, Isaiah predicts the coming judgment of God on Israel, and he describes it as darkness and sorrow. And it's not by accident that God announces the coming of Christ by lighting up the darkness with angels, right? And that Christ is often referred to as the light of the world. The salvation that God brings through Jesus is seen as light. So it makes sense that his judgment is seen as darkness, gross darkness, deep darkness. So that darkness that takes place at noon on the day Christ is crucified is associated with divine judgment. But get this, not toward people, 
toward his son, Jesus. Very important that you realize that. God's own son. He is the one being punished. He is the object of God's wrath. And we know that not just by the darkness surrounding Christ at the cross, but the words spoken by Christ from the cross. Look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, now notice the timeline again. At this time, it's the ninth hour. Do you see that? There's been darkness and silence for three hours. Then Christ cries out of the darkness in a loud voice. The word used here, it means he screamed. He yelled. He said, Eli, Eli. That's the Hebrew. In Mark, it says, Eloi, Eloi. That is the Aramaic means my God my God and then he says lemma sabachthani which means why have you abandoned me why have you forsaken me now those standing around Jesus in this day they knew what he was doing by saying this he's quoting Old Testament in fact he's quoting a very familiar psalm of David Psalm 22, verse 1. They all knew this psalm. All the Jews did. They had read this psalm. They had memorized this psalm. They chanted it. They prayed it. Perhaps they sung it. And what Jesus is indicating here by quoting these words is that another miraculous thing is taking place at the cross that is both dark and gloomy, but also bright and glorious for us, believers. We'll learn that in just a moment. He is indicating to us that a divine departure is taking place at the cross that is truly miraculous. At the cross, we learn that God the Father is separated from the Son. It is truly an inexplicable, unfathomable event, but a true historical event nonetheless. At this time, about the ninth hour, Jesus is at the climax of sin-bearing. Remember, we're told he bore our sin. He became sin for us. He took on our sin. And because he did this for us, God could not look upon his son. Because God the Father is perfectly holy, completely righteous. We're told in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, God is of pure eyes than to see evil. He cannot look at wrong. At the cross, God turned his back on his son because his son became sin for us. This is another reason why the cross is truly a dark and gloomy event. This perfect, unseverable relationship is detached. Get this. What takes place at Calvary is not the death of a martyr. It's more than the crucifixion of a good man, the murder of an innocent man. It is the substitutionary death of a sin-bearing Savior. If Jesus was simply dying a martyr's death, why would the Father forsake him? That's a question to ask those liberal scholars, right? Why would God turn his back on a work like that? No, there is much more going on at Calvary. God turned his back on Christ because Christ was bearing sin for us. We don't just learn that here. We learn that all throughout the Bible. Isaiah 53, I, I read earlier. 
We're told Christ will be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. We're told the Lord will lay on Christ our sin. Romans 4.25, we're told that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Christ died for our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told that, that God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin. It's all throughout the Bible. Again, Christ did not simply die for sins, but he became sin. And he was abandoned by the Father for us. Now, it's important to remember when we talk about the fact that Christ bore sin, he took the weight of all sin, past, present, and future. He himself never became a sinner, okay? Don't believe that. Don't believe anyone who teaches that. Though he was engulfed in sin, became sin, he remained sinless. He had no desire for that sin. We see that in his statement in verse 46. When he bears our sin and he is forsaken by the Father, he cries out to the Father. He wants the Father. He has no longing, no desire for that sin at Calvary, but a longing for God himself. John MacArthur said it in this way. Look at this quote up on the screen. He says this, What does Christ long for at Calvary? He longed for God. And therein lies the evidence of the purity of his spirit. So true. So though Christ bore sin, though he was made to be sin, he was without sin, he had no desire for sin. So we see that the cross is a a dark and gloomy event because at the cross, Christ was made to be sin by God for us and God's judgment was poured out on his own son. Christ was crushed by God for us at Calvary so that God might not have to crush us. Another reason why this is truly a dark and gloomy event is because Christ, the King of glory, is mocked by the ones he came to save as he dies in their place. Look at verses 47 through 49. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling out to Elijah. And one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Verse 49. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Now, though there is an act of kindness that's being done here in verse 48, for the most part, a lot of those standing by looking on at Jesus, they are mocking him. In verse 47, they respond to Jesus' words. They knew what he said. They knew he said, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. They knew that verse of Scripture, right? They knew that was a psalm of David. But jokingly, they say, oh, he's calling out to Elijah, which was Elias, Elias. They said, oh, he's calling out to Elijah. Let's see if Elijah's going to save him. I read that many of the Jews in this day, they believed that because Elijah had ascended into heaven without dying, many believed he would return to rescue those who were suffering during a time of great trouble. To support this, they used Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And you and I know that that was fulfilled by the coming of John the Baptist, right? Elijah did return, and John the Baptist, the spirit of 
John the Baptist was the same as Elijah. We're told that. We're also told that Elijah does show up, right? The Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured, Elijah is there. So that was fulfilled at this time. But they've taken these words that they knew Jesus spoke from the cross, and they've twisted them, and they've said, oh, he's calling out for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will show up and save him. They're mocking Jesus why he dies for them. But there is also an act of kindness that's done. Remember, Jesus mentioned that he thirsts on the cross in John 19, 28. And we're told here in Matthew 27, 48, that one person in the crowd ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Something very, very interesting happens here. It's real easy to miss, but get this. I believe it's significant that wine is used and that a hyssop is used. We're not told that here, but we're told in John 19 that a hyssop was used. You know, wine signifies Jesus' blood, right? He told us that. Well, did you know that a hyssop branch was used in Exodus chapter 12 to spread blood over the doorpost during Passover? How significant then is it that a hyssop branches is dipped in wine and used at the cross on Christ, the Lamb of God, the final and greatest Passover lamb. It's not by accident, is it? And then notice once again that this dark and gloomy event ends with the death of Jesus. Look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And what did he say? Well, we're told in John 19, 30, Jesus says, to tell us die, to tell us die, it is finished. And after we are told that in John's account, we're told he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Matthew tells us after crying out, Jesus yielded up his spirit. Folks, get this. Though Jesus' death is sad, dark, and gloomy, it's not tragic. He did not die a tragic death. Christ, by saying, to tell us die, it's finished, he's not saying, I'm finished, I'm done for. He's saying, it's finished. The work that God sent me to accomplish, it's done. It's finished. And then notice, once again, what he does next. This is so good. Matthew tells us he yielded up his spirit. John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He didn't jerk. He didn't suddenly just slump and kill over. John says he bowed his head. The Greek word used means to gently lay or pillow your head. And then it says he gave up his spirit. When Jesus accomplished the work the Father sent him to accomplish, he gently just pillowed his head and gave up his life. Remember in John 10, Jesus made it very, very clear. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down. Listen, folks. No man ultimately killed Christ. Now, they did in a way because remember the, the apostles in the book of Acts, they're constantly saying, you guys killed Jesus, right? But, but not, not ultimately. They didn't ultimately take his life. He laid his life down on his own terms, by his own power, and he did not lay it down. He did not give his life up until all things were 
finished. But it's still a sad scene, isn't it? It's a dark and and gloomy event. At the cross, Jesus was made sin by God for us. He was crushed by God for us, and he was mocked by the ones he came to save up until the time when he pillowed his head and gave up his life. The cross is a dark and gloomy event, but get this, it's also a joyous event. Wouldn't it be nice if the sun just came out right now? But it did in that day, right? After the cross. But it's a joyous event. We, we've talked about the gloom of the cross. Now let's talk about the joy that comes from the cross. Listen to what happened shortly after Christ laid his life down. Look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Amen? Let's stop here for just a minute. I think we need to. Here we have another miracle that has occurred. This miracle takes place in the temple. And not just anywhere in the temple, but at the most sacred part of the temple. Right outside the most holy place. The Holy of Holies. Any student of Scripture knows that in the middle of the temple, God had instructed that there was to be this inner sanctuary. And it was the place where He was to dwell in a very special, a very unique way. And there was a great curtain, a veil, that hung outside of this place that completely covered the entrance. And no one was allowed to enter this place except for one man, the high priest once a year he would enter in he would offer a blood sacrifice for his sins and the sins of his people so this is a place where God's presence resided here on earth in a very special way in a very unique way in the veil or the curtain that that covered this place it reminded everyone of the separation that had taken place between God and man at the fall and the high priest entering into this place year after year also was a reminder that man's sins had not yet been taken care of this work of salvation had not yet been completed but when christ died that all changed the curtain was ripped not from the bottom to the top but from the top to the bottom that is significant is it not it was not ripped from the bottom to the top because the way into god's presence and to be made right with him was was not made available by our works by us but by god by the god man who came down to us Which is why God took his finger and ripped that veil all the way down the center from the top to the bottom. And get this. Think about this. This event took place at Passover. So at this time, this place would have been filled with Jews from this area and and pilgrims all over. Can you imagine this curtain being torn? And in a moment, everyone would be able to look right into the inner sanctuary, right into the most sacred part of the temple. God is showing us through Christ's death, through the tearing of the temple curtain, that through Christ's accomplished works on the cross, the way into his presence has been made available once again. Like it was in the very good beginning. There's also a supernatural earthquake that takes place. Look at the end of verse 51. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. 
I believe this miracle here is closely associated with the other. I think, I think God is simply drawing attention to the fact that this is an earth-shaking, earth-shattering event that's taking place here. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. Salvation has come. A, a way has been opened up for man to be made right with God and be at peace with God and be forgiven of sin and be restored to God through Jesus. Notice what else happens. Look at verse 52. This is very interesting. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. How about that? Verse 53. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, underline that, after his resurrection, it's giving you a timeline there, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Very, very interesting, right? Notice that there is a break between this event and the tearing of the veil and the earthquake. We're told in verse 53, this happened after Jesus' resurrection. What exactly happened? Well, we're told here that the tombs were opened and the bodies of many Old Testament saints who had fallen asleep, that phrase, fallen asleep, is only ever used of believers. So these were saints of old looking to and trusting in the Messiah to come. We're told they rose up Physically, because we're told the tombs were open and many bodies were raised, right? And they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, why do we have this miracle here? What's the purpose of this miracle that God performs and why does Matthew include it? Well, I believe that God is giving us a little taste of what is to come. We, we're told that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, right? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection guarantees future resurrections. And God, through this miracle here, is giving us a taste. He's giving them a taste. He's showing us what's coming for all of us who fall asleep in Jesus. Because Christ has been raised physically, bodily, to live forevermore. His resurrection is the guarantee of our future resurrection to come now watch this this is key i want you to get this who did these old testament saints appear to we're told they appeared to many i i imagine they appeared to the same people that jesus appeared to after being raised don't you giving god's people even more boldness to go out and to minister for him think about it we often focus on the fact that they were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and that's essential, that's the most important. But they were also witnesses to the risen saints, reminding them of what awaits them in the future. That's amazing for us too, amen. That's amazing. Now, a question some will ask is this, okay, if all these things are happening simultaneously after Christ's death and, and during his, his, his crucifixion and short time after his resurrection, then why wasn't there a greater response by those looking on? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, remember, most of the disciples had left, minus John. They were not at the cross. But those who were there and witnessed these things some responded positively, some did not. They responded in a variety of ways, which brings us to our last point. We have discussed the gloom at the cross, the joy from the cross. Now let's end by looking at the response to the cross. 
Notice first the response of the Roman soldiers. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Here we have another account of a transformed centurion. There are several of these stories in Scripture, right? You have a few in your Scripture reading this week where centurions are are shown in a favorable light. Remember the great faith of the Roman centurion? Christ highlights that for us in Matthew uh, chapter 8. We'll read about that this week. Also, remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? We talked about him. He was another centurion. He was a God-fearer. An angel appeared to him, and then Peter appears to him, and the door opens for the Gentiles, the gospel to the Gentiles. He becomes a committed follower of, of Jesus. Another great story about a centurion remember a centurion was the leader of a hundred Roman soldiers and we learn that this centurion here in Matthew 27 is with Jesus he's keeping watch over him with other soldiers we're told he saw the earthquake he wouldn't have seen what took place in the temple but he saw what was taking place around the cross which I believe we can argue was for Gentiles as well as Jews those signs because of his response he was appointed to keep watch over Jesus so he had probably been with Jesus throughout his trial he had heard the accusations made about Jesus he watched him suffer he heard his cries from Calvary witnessed the three-hour darkness and the earthquake after his death and then he finally just becomes convinced God works in his heart he sees these things he becomes convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be he says truly surely he is the son of God and notice he's not the only one who says it right we're told other soldiers with him were filled with awe, and they all said truly this was the son of God so these unbelieving Roman soldiers were changed by the cross they responded in faith we're also told that there were many believing women there as well boy Matthew focuses in in Matthew 27 and 28 look at it when you get time he focuses in on these faithful women we're going to look at them each each week as we go throughout this look at verses 55 through 56 there are also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee the women at the cross are often overlooked but they should not be they had been following Jesus for some time had ministered to him during these dark difficult hours they were looking on from a distance but we we know from the other accounts that they do not respond like most of Jesus's disciples do minus John they do not move further away from Christ but closer and closer to him at Calvary and among the women mentioned here we have Mary Magdalene many of you know her she was a devoted Christ follower and was one of the first to witness the empty tomb and Jesus's resurrection you have Mary the mother of James she is also the wife of Cleopas we learn that in John 19 she like Mary Magdalene never leaves the Lord's side may that be said of us through the tough times amen 
She will be with him at his burial as well. We'll see that next week. We also have the mother of the sons of Zebedee and the other accounts we learn that this is Salome. She is mentioned with Jesus on multiple occasions. Many believe her to be the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is mentioned in John 19, 25. She is also the mother of James and John, which if she was a sister of Mary's, that would make them cousins to Jesus. She is also one of the ones who helped prepare Jesus's body for burial. And we learn in John 19 that, that Jesus's mother is there as well, right at the foot of the cross, because we learn about that encounter that he has with her and, and John, his disciple. These are devoted followers of Jesus. So, so notice the response here to Christ on the cross. You have non-believing Gentiles, the centurion and other Roman soldiers who respond in faith. You have faithful women at Calvary who do not pull away from Christ at Calvary like many of the disciples do, but they draw near to him. Great responses. But there are others who responded in a different way. Though they witnessed these things, even beat their chest, like Luke describes in Luke 23, 48, many of them returned home and remained unchanged. How? How? How could they witness these great miraculous events at Calvary and not give their lives up and over to Jesus? Simple answer. Folks, never underestimate the power and the strength of a stone cold and calloused heart they were committed to unbelief they were committed to rejecting Christ no matter what happens and we're going to see that in the weeks to come may that not be said of us what's your response going to be today you've heard the message You've heard the meaning of the cross. What say you? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been impacted by what God has said from his word. What will your response be? Have you responded to Jesus in faith? If not, I urge you to today. I pray that you would today respond like the women at Calvary. Respond like the centurion and his soldiers. Draw near to Christ. Turn from your sin. Give your life up and over to Jesus today. Place your faith alone in his person and work alone and be saved. Let's pray.